From RTE News, this is States of Mind. Donald, you're not going to be able to insult your way to the presidency. Little Buddha touch, Slippy Joe and Crazy Bernie, Mini Mike. I hit Pocahontas way too early. We have a president who is not only a pathological liar. We have a criminal living in the White House. A billionaire who calls women fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Let's just pick somebody, please, and let's start this thing. Let's start it. Pick somebody. Your U.S. election 2020 podcast. With Brian O'Donovan in Washington. And Jackie Fox in Dublin. Today. You know, I would say between 100 and 200,000 cases, excuse me, deaths. Unsettling pictures of nurses in a New York City hospital wearing garbage bags because of what they call the lack of protective clothing. This is a country that was built on getting it done. Please stay calm, stay home, stay safe. Brian, Leo Varadkar said here recently that Ireland is in the calm before the storm. I feel like in the United States, the winds are really picking up there. Grim milestones have been reached. One over the weekend that 100,000 people in the US have now been infected with COVID-19. That's right. And by hitting that number, the US passing out China and Italy in terms of the numbers of cases, but it should be said the numbers of deaths in the US still remain below other countries. But grim warnings as well in recent days, Jackie, about deaths. Looking at what we're seeing now, you know, I would say between 100 and 200,000 cases, excuse me, deaths. Dr. Anthony Fauci, Donald Trump's infectious disease expert, warning that the number of deaths in the US could rise to as much as 200,000. Now, over the weekend, we saw different tone from Donald Trump. He looked at that massive figure of deaths of 200,000, but he spoke about how if we hadn't taken action, it could have been a lot worse and we could have been looking at 2 million deaths. And he actually said in his one of his most recent press conferences on the coronavirus, he said, if we keep the deaths to around 100,000, then we will have done a very good job. 2.2 million people from this. And so... If we could hold that down, as we're saying, to 100,000, it's a horrible number. Maybe even less, but to 100,000. So we have between 100 and 200,000. We all together have done a very good job. So I think in recent days we've seen this acknowledgement from Donald Trump that it is going to be very, very bad in the U.S. But his argument is, if I hadn't taken the steps I've taken, it would have been a whole lot worse. It seems there has been a kind of sniping between governors of states and the White House over what measures to take and what exactly to do uh, with all of this, especially after Donald Trump said, and he kind of floated the idea of quarantining New York and two other states, but rolled back on that later. Yes. And again, that took some of the states by surprise. Donald Trump was speaking over the weekend at an event. He was seeing off a medical ship that was setting sail from Norfolk, Virginia, heading up north to New York to help them in their fight against the coronavirus. And Donald Trump said he was considering imposing temporary two-week quarantines on New York, New Jersey and Connecticut. Around that time, when he said that, the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, was giving his press conference of the day And he said it was the first he heard of this. And he said President Trump had never raised this issue of a quarantine with him. He said he didn't know how it would work. Oh, look, a lockdown is what they did in Wuhan, China. 
and we're not in China, and we're not in Wuhan. I think it would paralyze the economy. I think it would uh, shock the economic markets in a way that we've never seen before. Uh, as a governor, I'm not going to close off my borders. Trucks have to come in, food has to come in, mail has to come in. Uh, I'm not going to put the health and safety of my people at risk. But it once again highlighted, Jackie, the unusual situation we have here in the US of the federal government on one side and then individual states and governors and mayors on the other side. Uh, that's something we should go into further for this week's refresher. There has been a pulling of power between states and then at the presidential level. And it can be quite confusing. Who makes the decisions during times of crisis? Is it up to state level to decide on measures or the overall fed federal government? So the federal government is basically made up of Congress, the president and the federal courts. Powers include aligning with foreign governments, regulating commerce, declaring war, etc., etc. The powers are not all granted to the federal government and are reserved for individual states. So state governments like New York, for example, it's modelled in the same way as the federal government with a leader, the governor, courts and legislative branches. For this pandemic, control measures have been mainly the initiative of individual states rather than the federal government, like social distancing and allocation of medical resources. But when looking to fight the spread of this illness collectively, it helps if you're on the same page as your neighbouring state without conflicting messages or decisions, especially when borders are open. How there is a way for collective measures rather than the states deciding themselves is through official guidelines or direction from the federal government. But that took a while and has been lacking. It has, yeah. So Donald Trump, on a federal, national level, announced these recommended restrictions, guidelines for 15 days, which lapse around now, and he has extended those guidelines now until the end of April, the April 30th, on social distancing. But they were only guidelines, because as you say, Jackie, it is actually up to the individual governors, and in some cases the mayors, to announce their own restrictions and their own lockdowns. So the federal government doesn't have the power to order businesses to close. It can issue guidelines, it can issue recommendations, but what the federal government does have is the money, and it can declare states of emergency. And right now, when you're signed up to the White House mailing press list, every few hours, every few days, your inbox fills up with President Trump has declared a national emergency in the state of Nevada. President mm. Trump has declared a national emergency in the state of New York. And the press release will go on to explain that federal funding and federal aid and federal help will now flow into that state and will be administered by FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency. So that's where you see the federal mixing with the state. But you raised a good point about if there isn't coordination and there isn't some sort of regulation across all the states, what we've actually seen happening is some states competing with each other and trying to outbid each other for like yeah. medical supplies, ventilators, that kind of thing. And that's where individual governments, governors have been very critical of the Trump administration saying, if you had a more coordinated approach when it comes to medical supplies, we wouldn't be fighting with each other for the limited resources and we wouldn't be outbidding each other for the medical supplies and ventilators. And if we look at New York in particular, the rate of growth in cases there, if it continues, it'll suffer a more severe outbreak than those experienced in Wuhan, China or the Lombardy region of Italy. And paramedics have been describing New York as a war zone. They are totally overwhelmed. There are images of nurses wearing 
bin bags because they don't have enough protective gowns. And what everybody has been hearing about, though, is ventilators. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo said that states need ventilators so desperately for COVID-19 patients that they will test splitting a ventilator between patients that they have. Uh, it's difficult to perform. It's experimental. But at this point, we have no alternative. So we're working on this experimental application. Picture two hospital beds, two people in beds, one ventilator between the two of them, but with two sets of tubes, two sets of pipes going to the two patients. Yeah, I mean, it's terrifying when you hear these things of sharing ventilators, sharing masks, reusing masks. You know, they are desperately running out of supplies. I think the mayor of New York said recently that they have one week's worth of medical supplies left. New York, the absolute epicenter of this outbreak. Huge number of cases, huge number of deaths. And it really does show that such a big population hub generates these massive numbers. Now, the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, is giving his daily press conferences every day. He's widely regarded as someone who is on top of this. But unfortunately, some of the press conferences can often be incredibly negative, particularly when it comes mm. to the issue of medical supplies. And that's where he gets very critical as well of the Trump administration saying they're not doing enough. Now Donald Trump would counter that they are funneling lots of medical supplies to New York. In recent days, Donald Trump has sort of suggested that some states were maybe asking for too many medical supplies and overinflating the amount of gear they actually needed. He's also made some rather obscure suggestions about stuff going missing. No, I want the people in New York to check uh, Governor Cuomo, Mayor de Blasio, that when a hospital that's getting 10,000 masks goes to 300,000 masks during the same period, people should check that because there's something going on. It's not, I don't think it's hoarding. I think it's maybe worse than hoarding, but check it out. Check it out. He also points, when he talks about New York, to the fact that he sent that ship, that medical ship from Norfolk, Virginia, to assist in the effort against the coronavirus in New York. Amid the panic in New York City that we're hearing about, around a half an hour drive north is one area where there is a glimmer of hope that the curve is flattening amongst the rising numbers in New York City. Just weeks ago, a city north of Manhattan had one of the first clusters of COVID-19. In New Rochelle, a one-mile containment zone was set up around an entire community. New Rochelle's experience does give us some reason for cautious optimism. New Rochelle was the first place in New York to impose strict restrictions on its citizens to contain a cluster of coronavirus cases. And it may be starting to work. New Rochelle got put into a very early quarantine, quite a strict lockdown situation. It seems to have worked. It seems to have lowered the numbers, certainly. But I think everybody is very wary and very careful about being overly optimistic too soon. Because, of course, if you lift lockdown procedures and people return onto the streets and people start suspending their social distancing, there is a fear, of course, that these things can rise up again. But certainly members of the New York State National Guard were called in to deliver meals to people in New Rochelle who were stuck in their homes. There was deep cleaning of communal buildings. There was command centres set up. It really was an area in lockdown. And as I say, certainly the figures at the moment seem to be pointing in the right direction. And one mile away from New Rochelle is the village of Pelham. It's just north of Manhattan. And from there, we can now speak to Clive Anderson. 
Clive, you're originally from Cork. I'm outnumbered here with two Cork men on states of mind. Good morning, Jackie. That's right. Yes, I'm, I'm from Cork. We'll, we'll, we'll forgive her, Clive. We'll forgive her. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, Clive, listen, thank you so much um, for joining us on States of Mind because we know you're really busy at the moment. Uh, you're in a very tricky position where you are. Tell us about what you do. Yes, well, um, first of all, uh, Jackie, um, I'm located, like you said earlier, one mile from New Rochelle, which is, um, be, had, has had global coverage in the last couple of weeks. Um, but I'm actually, um, I'm in the death care industry. So in other words, I have a funeral home here in Pelham, which is one mile away from New Rochelle, where all this happened. You're a funeral director. and That's right. You received a letter from the coroner's office recently. What did that say? Yes, um, last week we received a letter um, from the coroner's office. Basically, they're they're expecting 5,000 deaths in New York City in the five boroughs. Now, that like puts goosebumps up in the back of your head, um, just to give people a picture what it's like. So where I'm located is, in relation to New York City, it would be like I'd be located in Balancholic, and then you'd have New York City would be like in the center of uh, Cork. And they have already set up um, mortuaries, um, temporary mortuaries outside these hospitals. This morning I read in the newspaper that they have set up a hospital, a temporary hospital in Central Park. Um, You know, we've also, and everybody knows that they have sent up, um, you know, a medical hospital, a floating medical hospital from Virginia. Um, So it's it's totally um, changed uh, everything um, that we do here. Now, what the medical examiner, uh, what they're concerned about is, is that they just don't have the staff to transport these patients when they pass away into their care. They don't have mortuaries big enough, so they're reaching out to funeral homes like us, and not only us, but many more funeral homes in New York City and state area, to try and help them out to transport these remains and put them somewhere and store them until these guys can get proper burials. It's a very grim picture, Clive. Is there any cause for optimism? We were speaking earlier about the town of New Rochelle maybe flattening the curve, maybe coming out the other end. I mean, are we seeing anything that points to a peak being reached, maybe at least in the next couple of weeks? New Rochelle is is in the county of Westchester, and Westchester touches New York City. So we have, I feel like we have seen, we're seeing the back end of the curve, I feel like they have lifted the... um, and the barrier that they had, the one-mile barrier around New Rochelle, that has been lifted. We have seen that the number of people in New Rochelle who've contact, who are contacting COVID-19 has reduced. However, down in New York City, that is not the case. But up here in Westchester, I feel like we're not as densely populated as New York City. People have been practicing social distance, and people have been very, 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 very careful. I mean, you look out the window here, and it's like a ghost town. I was in JFK Airport yesterday to take somebody in, and I drove back, and I must have went about three, four miles on the highway and didn't see one car. It was very eerie. Clive, how do you prepare for a funeral and a wake in these circumstances? Surely it's nothing like what happened before. So typically, you know, when people would have funerals, they would just... Everybody would come, and there was an open door, and people come in and leave. So you're absolutely correct. Um, now, because of the governor's guidelines, we cannot have more than immediate family inside in the funeral home. The second thing that has impacted funerals is that the Catholic Church um, are not having any funeral masses. 
Now, 95% of the funerals that we would do would be Catholic. They're not letting the clergy into the funeral homes. So it's, it's very difficult for families right now because they can't get any closure. So think about, you know, you're only allowed to go in with your immediate family. You spend a couple of minutes and then you leave the funeral home and you go to the cemetery. And we have one this morning that's actually um, just left our, our funeral home at 10 a.m. this morning. And when we get to that cemetery, the cemetery has told us that it's only the hearses allowed into the cemetery and the family have to stay outside. And and surely as well, they can't comfort each other. They can't give each other a hug. They can't give each other a pat on the back. They have to stay probably six feet from each other. Yes. Um, I saw one case in particular who I know the person and uh, their loved one died with COVID-19. They weren't allowed into the funeral home. They had to wait outside the funeral home door. So they stayed in their cars when the hearse um, left the funeral home parking lot, the family joined the hearse in procession. They went to the cemetery and only the hearse, like I said earlier, was allowed into the cemetery. So the only closure that this family got was following their mother from the funeral home to the cemetery and nothing else. Not even a prayer at the grave, not even a prayer at the funeral home. Absolutely nothing. Clive, as someone who very much is seeing this firsthand up close, the horror of it all, what's your view on the government handling of it, both local government, Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, and then more on a more federal, national level, Donald Trump? Um, on, a local gov- on a local level, I think um, Governor Cuomo is doing a wonderful job. I really think that he has come out to be a wonderful leader. And I have to say, I would not have been a big fan of Governor Cuomo in the past. I know it's difficult. Like People are, are inside in their homes. I know that, you know, this, this, like he also had people who were in, the min- in mental health care um, who are retired, he's asked them to come back out and try and help people because people are, you know, who have mental health issues and they're inside, locked inside a home now for three weeks. It's going to have an effect on them. And he is, you know, he's using all the resources that he can. And, you know, is he taking too much precaution? Absolutely not. You can't take too much precaution with this. On the national level, uh, with uh, President Trump, I mean, he was hoping to, uh, you know, kickstart the economy by uh, the middle of April. This morning or over the weekend, he pushed it back to the end of April. I I understand where he's coming from, but I think this is a social issue right now, and we have to put it before um, a financial issue or economy. I think you know people's health and well-being should be the number one. I also read this morning that there's been five million people in the last week have signed up for like welfare, social welfare. Now, if we compare that to back when we had the recession ten years ago there was 190,000 people signed up. So it's, you know, it's, it's having a huge effect on our health and it's also having a huge effect on the economy. So the future is going to tell us, you know, what's, you know, there's going to be a lot that's going to be unveiled in the future as to what is going to happen with our economy and what's going to happen with these people and what's going to happen with their jobs. It must be very emotive, Clive. You have people who are distressed because they lost their jobs heartbroken because they might have lost a loved one and they need each other. Where does it all go from here for you? Because this isn't going away anytime soon, it seems. I mean, for me, being a funeral director, I'm, I'm with people at the most difficult time in their life. I'm with people who have lost their loved one. A lot of times they might have just, just lost their job the week before. You know, and now basically they're, they're trying to grieve They've lost their job. They've no income coming in. They've lost their loved one. 
you know, they're looking out, they're trying to get clergy to try and be there and comfort them. The clergy are not available because, again, they can't come into the funeral home or, or have any services. So as for us, I mean, it's nearly like I'm becoming Father Clive now, you know. It's like not only mm-hmm. am I a funeral director, I'm trying to there and help them as much as I can and try and have some kind of a service, um, even though I'm not an ordained clergy, but I'm trying to do something because right now these people have absolutely nothing. And what do you do, Clive, to help them? Well, basically, I mean, the first thing that, you know, we obviously do is, is, is from that call, like the moment that that phone rings, um, you know, we pick up the phone and, you know, we basically let them know that we are open. We're still here helping you and we're going to do everything we can. And we're going to just, you know, you've made the right call. We're going to walk you through this. Um, we do everything as far as the, all the paperwork is done over the phone. Um, the contracts they would sign, the cremation authorization is all done online. Um, they sign it electronically, um, then it comes in, and when they do come in, we limit it to, we don't let any more than 10 people into our building, and that's just um, our policy. Even if they have 18 immediate family members, we will not let more than 10 people in. And then once those people leave, then the next car, we will let them in, and they can spend some time with their loved one. Because I think it's absolutely important that these people do get to spend some time with their loved one, because back in 9-11, when we had... Um, the Twin Towers go down and so many people couldn't find their loved ones. They were buried under the rubble and they were never able to have funerals. That has had an impact on these people 10 years later. And my fear is that if we don't at least give the family an opportunity to say their farewells and spend some time with their loved one, this is going to have an effect on their lives 10 years from now, 15 years from now, 20 years from now. So it's, we're doing everything we can and we're like pushing the guidelines to the limits as far as funerals. Um, and I mean, I suppose the, the biggest difference really is from maybe a month ago to now is the number of people coming in and not having any clergy. Well, I think you are doing Cork and Ireland proud in New York. It's safe to say, <sighs> Clive. And um, Brian, is there anything else you want to add there before we let No, I'm just Clive aghast, Clive. It's, it's, a, it's a very... Sad, bleak situation that you're in right now, my goodness me. But I hope, as you say, maybe a corner will be turned soon and at the very least we'll reach a peak and things will start to come down the other side. Yeah, well, you know, what I've been telling everybody is, you know, we we prepare for the worst, but we pray and we hope for the best. Yeah. So even though the medical examiner has, has basically a predicting 5,000 deaths, I always say, look, this is hopefully this is the worst case scenario. Hopefully it won't get to this. Let's stay positive. Let's practice the social distancing. Let's do what we're told to do and obey the guidelines. And let's hope that it doesn't get to this. And that's, you know, my prayer every night before I go to bed that it doesn't get to that. And hopefully that will be so. Listen, Clive Anderson, take care and during these times. And thank you so much for everything you do. And thank you for joining us on States of Mind. Thank you, Jackie. And thank you, Brian. It was a pleasure talking to you both. Thank you, Clive. Bye now. Bye bye. The motion is adopted. So that $2 trillion in emergency economic aid was agreed in recent days, defying a deep distrust between Democrats and Republicans. What does this mean for Americans? What will they see in their pockets? 
Yeah, so I suppose you could divide it up into a few different sections. That $2 trillion economic stimulus plan, the biggest ever economic stimulus plan agreed in the U.S. There'll be support for small businesses affected by the coronavirus outbreak, support for big enterprises and big industries like the airline industry, and then also payments to individual taxpayers. It depends on how much you earn, how many kids you have in the house, but a payment of around $1,000, maybe $1,200 for individual U.S. taxpayers. Very good news for them, I guess, but not everybody will get it, uh, particularly if you're an undocumented migrant. It could be a tricky situation in the US. Yeah, there's a cohort of people out there who cannot collect unemployment or benefits from that government bailout. And here with us is Fiona McEntee, immigration lawyer in Chicago. Fiona, how are the undocumented faring in this incredibly tricky and difficult time? You know, this administration has come in um, just with a kind of myriad of anti-immigration policies. Um, but I think now, more than ever, we're seeing that heightened. Fiona, not- many undocumented migrants pay tax, don't they? I remember speaking, interviewing the, some undocumented migrants in the past, and they said, you pay your taxes and you, be, you know, do all the things you should do so that if your day in court comes where you try to apply to regularise your situation, you can show that you have this proof of tax. So although many undocumented migrants are taxpayers, they're not really going to benefit from this stimulus plan, are they? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good point, Brian. And I think it is a big myth that undocumented immigrants do not pay taxes. And the vast majority of them actually do pay taxes. Um, And they pay taxes through either, you know, another social security number or through um, a temporary tax number known as an ITIN. So they essentially pay into a system um, and they don't ever get to reap the benefits of it. And we're seeing that now with this new stimulus bill that undocumented immigrants, um, essentially those who don't have a green card or a valid social security number are being cut out of this um, this bill. And also mixed, mixed status families are also being excluded. So if maybe one spouse has... Um, you know, is in valid status, but the other is not, they will be excluded um, from the bill. And looking at health as well, Fiona, if somebody got COVID-19 or they think they have COVID-19, do they have health insurance? Can they get any, can they even get tested? Now, I believe the USCIS, so here the immigration services have come out and said that, you know, any testing or services related to coronavirus won't be held against them. But that's hard for people to believe and to trust when when they've just been, you know, kind of repeatedly made feel very vulnerable and insecure in this country. So at a time like this, you know, this is when you really want people to trust that if they go and get tested, that it's not going to be held against them. But, you know, I think having seen what's happened over the past few years here, I can understand why people would be very reluctant to do that. And how are they coping? I mean, we run here in Chicago, we run the the non-profit immigration um, clinic through um, one of the, the non-profits here. It's the Chicago Irish Immigrant Services. We have seen just a huge amount of anxiety in people coming in to see us over the past few years. Um, to our office recently, we've received, <clears throat> excuse me, so many different calls. You know, even this morning, there's people, you know, concerned about, you know, kids on J1s, but also Mm. stimulus checks and unemployment. That's another thing that people won't be able to receive if they're not in lawful status. Um, 
So, I mean, I am concerned about the mental health of the immigrant population yeah. here. Fiona, just out of curiosity as well, since you're in Chicago, how is it there during this outbreak? How are you feeling? I mean, we, to be honest, like I feel um, in a way like we had a bit of a heads up ahead of time from my mom at home in Ireland and um, had been calling me kind of weeks before things started to kick off here saying like, I just don't feel like you're getting the full picture. And she was telling me what was wow. going on. And I obviously was listening to the news at home. And so for us and our firm, we shut down and went remote, you know, like a week or so before um, or even longer before um, I had taken my kids out of school just in advance of the even the schools closing here. Um, so I feel like we were a little bit more prepared, but the city is essentially like a ghost town. I mean, the mayor and the governor here have shown such tremendous leadership and they are taking a no nonsense approach. But yeah, it's a scary time to 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 be anywhere, I think. Some brief and actual election news before we go. A new poll has put Joe Biden and President Trump kind of neck and neck with President Trump leading a little bit in the 2020 presidential race. Yeah, it's been an interesting few weeks for polls because, as we know and as we've discussed, Donald Trump coming under a lot of criticism for his handling of the coronavirus crisis, but actually his approval rating has reached an all-time high. It's still not exceptionally high for a US president, but it's the best he's ever seen. The other rating, of course, that Donald Trump is obsessed with at the moment, Jackie, is TV ratings, and he's been tweeting about this and talking about this in recent days, that he's delighted with the huge TV ratings that his daily (laughs) press briefings are getting in relation to the coronavirus. Absolutely. Um, It has been a heavy enough day today, Brian. I think we should end on something lighter. Two people who have turned into my favourite brothers is what I can really say about this. Who are these two? Who are we talking about? Oh, come on. The Cuomo brothers. Uh, So Andrew, obviously the governor of New York, but his brother, Chris, is a top CNN anchor. And to be honest, they are the absolute spits of each other. And I mean, and high achieving family as well. Come on. And they've been dominating the airwaves. Chris Cuomo has quite a primetime show. That's gone up in the ratings because everybody's watching news right now. And Andrew Cuomo giving his daily press briefings. And actually, on the issue of poll numbers, his poll numbers are through the roof right now. And I've even heard some people suggesting that if it was an Andrew Cuomo situation, (laughs) if you could swap out the Democratic candidate at the last minute, maybe we could replace Joe Biden with Andrew Cuomo. But yes, certainly two brothers that are very much in the headlines and very much dominating the airwaves right now. We'll keep an eye to see maybe the VP nomination, even though I know Joe Biden promised that it would go to a woman, but you never know, things might change. But Chris recently interviewed his brother Andrew about the outbreak on his TV programme. And I think we're going to end the podcast with this just to warm some hearts out there. So, Brian, until next time, stay safe and I'll chat to you soon. You too, Jackie. You too. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Curfew. I don't like the word curfew. Dad tried to have a curfew for me. I never got past the resentment, but uh, I do believe you'll see more tightening if the numbers don't slow. Your problems with the curfew. It's the least of your problems, just so you know. I never fight. You violated the curfew all the time. Caused much pain, but that's a different story. I don't believe in rules. Governor Andrew Cuomo, I appreciate you coming on the show. I love you. I'm proud of what you're doing. I know you're working hard for your state, but no matter how hard you're working, there's always time to call mom. She wants to hear from you, just so you know. Yeah, I called mom. I called mom just before I came on this show. By the way, 
She said I was her favorite. She never said Good that. news is she said you were her second favorite. Second favorite son, no. Christopher. We both know neither of us are mom's first or second favorite in the family. I can't believe you're lying to my audience. You've blown the credibility of the entire interview. I should have ended it before. Second favorite son. Oh. Listen to the word. Listen to the word. Politicians are very tricky. You throw a word yeah. in there after the first time you said it creates a lot of doubt. But I appreciate you clarifying. Not me. Straight across the plate. Stay strong. Straight across the plate. Stay strong. Stay for your people. And I appreciate you being here. I love you, brother. You All too, right. brother.